0: Some of the guys like on those longer courses, like eight, 12 weeks, uh, are turning up chubby. So they're turning up like not fat, but overweight so that they can chew into those, those stores and resources and they're actually losing weight as they go. So everything's appearing to become easier. So if you turn up lean and mean, then there's only one way for you to go, isn't there? It's going to be start eating into your, eating into your muscle mass. Um, Interestingly, most of the people that that we ever saw who turned up looking like freaks, like lean, mean, geez, he's trained for this, they don't make it. They don't make it. And equally, the ones who are, you know, just clearly like fat and out of shape, they obviously don't make it either. So it's it's that middle ground, you know, that kind of not quite a dad bod, but like, you know, someone who clearly trains, who's who's in shape, but you could be in better shape than you are. And you see them at the end, you're like, ah, okay. You 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 planned for this. You were smart.
1: I'm your host as always, Todd Davidson, and on episode 49 of the Platform to Perform podcast, I was delighted to be joined by Josh Fletcher. Josh first reached out to me following his viewing of my Patreon video, physical preparation for the special armed forces, to offer his feedback as to the program that I detailed in this video, which I'll leave in the show notes below. And rather than keep this conversation between the two of us, I thought. What better way to allow Josh to share his experiences as the exos human performance manager tasked with modernizing the physical preparation of the special armed forces than to have him on the podcast on today's show. We discussed how Josh would conduct a needs analysis of special force operators and military personnel, the top indicators of success and failure in the special forces, and finally the stories the cameras don't tell on SAS who dares wins. Hope you enjoy the episode and I'll catch you again on the other side.
0: Uh, well, great question. Good afternoon, firstly. Um, what a way to start. I, I do what I do uh, because I guess a couple of reasons, really. Uh, number one is I, I, I want to give back. Uh, it, I want to give back to people. So I want to help people, I want to help people improve. And I think specifically, I want to help people that do the things that I can't. So, I'm a failed rugby player. I had everything needed, like, physically, but I had hands like cow's tits, so I was never going to make it. Uh, And I wanted to work with people, I guess, who were talented enough and and then hope that I could shape them physically and mentally to to get to the level that they could be and deserve to be. So I think think that's where where my motivations lie for for why I do what I do. And, And it's a lot of fun. I mean... You know you just if you're working in a team sport or or whatever you're working in with a group of lads or group of, it's just a just a bit of a laugh when you go to work you, you have fun you interact you socialize you're around people and for, for me that's great
1: yeah and there's a well bit of a shameless plug something uh, you sent me a while back um in regards to coaches reflections and sharing uh, funny stories um I'd highly recommend highly recommend that pdf um if people are interested in the uh, laughter that does come with team sports
0: yeah yeah well um, I'm sure I'm sure everybody's got a few a few deep and dark uh, stories in their closet so maybe one day we'll get them all down on paper and uh, somebody will write a book about it hey
1: <laughs> and in terms of your philosophy then how does that feed into your experience with dealing with tactical athletes and or where does that fit in if at all?
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's another, it's another quite a good question because I, I was thinking about this. Can I, can I really define and articulate my training philosophy? And outside the realms of get people to do what they need to do to the level they need to be able to do it, whenever they need to be able to do it, I don't really feel like I've got a, a, an easily definable philosophy. My, my philosophy is get out the way as much as I possibly can and and allow the coaches to do their job or allow the, you know, the, the cadre to do their job, if we're talking uh, tactical or, or allow the operators to go and do their job. And I need to, as a coach, have the least amount of impact on their jobs from a detrimental perspective and the maximum amount of impact on their job performance from, you know, a positive perspective. So there's there's that side of things with regard like specifics of, of how i how i would coach things as in um you know the finer details and the, the principles of strength and conditioning no i don't have anything definitive because it changes for every single individual based on the requirements of the job or the task so there's, there's no definitives i can give you there there's a fundamental requirement to be adaptable at all times just about in every environment but mo- specifically in the environments i've been in for the last uh three to three to five years and and then the the major changes for me really have in the last yeah i guess five years really have come from the the approach towards people and treating everybody as an individual regardless of of what we think about tactical operators they're 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 people normal people with an extraordinary job So they're just the same as you and I in lots of ways. They still have thoughts, feelings, emotions, and that impacts their behavior, their physiology. And and they still need tactics and and strategies and skills to control those. Still get influenced by things like a disagreement with their missus, the kids being ill, they'll they'll get impacted by that. And um, yeah, they're just, they're just humans. So really trying to understand how to apply the the principles of strength and conditioning, good coaching to, you know, good communication as well, regardless of who those people are. So I I suppose that would, that would be my philosophy. It's a little bit fluffy, a little bit woolly, but you have to change what you do depending on who's in front of you. And that's, that's a fundamental for me.
1: And uh, speaking about who's in front of you in uh, our off air discussions, in the past you was discussing about how you've gone from for example being based with the is to then ending up in romania and minus 16 conditions uh, do you want to give the listeners i suppose uh, readers digest of your journey so far and how life has taken you to these different countries and working with the tactical athletes that you have done
0: yeah well geez it's not it's not uh it's a it's a it's a long winded story. It's a bit weird and weird and wonderful. A few twists and and um, a few twists in there. So I, I began my journey as a as a fitness instructor. I decided that I, I got into. Personal training, or, or a, an obsession with becoming a personal trainer. When I when I saw Britney Spears' personal trainer on TV, when I was I don't know maybe in my single figures still, when I was you know eight nine ten, and I saw him on TV, and I was like, wow, look at this guy, look who's training, that's amazing. I want to be him. So that was what I that was all I ever wanted to do, and I, I went through the whole of school knowing that that was all I wanted to do. And of course, I got to the point where I started actually, you know, moving closer. I, I did my degree uh, in sport science and then, or, and then I went traveling for a little bit. I came back. I, I decided that in order to become because I only wanted to be a personal trainer, my ceiling at that point was personal trainer. I decided that I wanted to take every single step required in order to achieve that and be the best personal trainer I could. So I decided I was going to be a fitness instructor first. Then I, I, I got a fitness manager job off the back of that. And that was in some ways taking me away from the path I wanted. But in other ways, it gave me some fantastic skills like selling uh, patience, you know, building blocks and, and stepping stones to, to create a better outcome at the end. And then eventually I got into the personal training and, and I, I. I flew with it because I'd spent so long preparing myself and, and I was, I was ready for it. And and I went all in with that. They offered a, they offered me to swap my rent money for hours working at the gym and everybody did that. And I just turned up on day one. And I think at that time it was like 360 quid or something. And I had 360 quid. I had 500 quid. My rent was 300 and my bill for fitness first and city center, Manchester was 360. So I was, down on money i didn't have enough money but i went in and on day one i slapped down 360 quid on the table and they said what's this i said it's my rent money for the month they said no no, no you just do some hours I, said, I don't want to do some hours i will earn more in those 10 hours of work you want me to do than this rent is worth and they said well yeah nobody does this well i am and what i did was create a solid stable business which um really taught me the value of talking to people and how to communicate with different types of people which you can bring throughout your whole career because, you know, each individual is different, but also, you know, in, in a multi-sport environment where, where I ended up with kind of EIS, you're, you're talking to a netball player, not the same way you talk to a rugby player, to a water polo player, to a taekwondo athlete, to all these different sports. It's like taking a different hat off and, and you know, it's like Superman. Or not, not, I'm not comparing myself to Superman. I'm just saying that you have a different uniform, And then when, when I would change my uniform to work with a different sport, because they all liked you to wear their uniform. When I would change my uniform, I would change my mindset and my mentality. It was almost like, right, reset. How do I need to communicate with these people and ensure that I don't cross over because I knew that I couldn't talk to the, to the Taekwondo athletes the same way as I could the water polo boys. So, um, but yeah, so, so, I got I, I hit my ceiling with the personal training, so I would reached my goal. Obviously, Britney Spears still eludes me, but I'd, I'd hit the goal with the personal training, and it wasn't it wasn't going any further. And I had made a decision that at that point that that I wanted to train athletes and was just trying, looking for for a way to do it. And I. I actually made some pretty extreme changes. So I, I had a, the, that that personal training business was probably worth about 50,000 at the time. I was working really well and everything was good. I had a, I had a city centre flat in Manchester and and um, I was playing, trying to make it like semi-pro rugby, putting about 25 hours a week into that. And I just jacked the whole lot in and just I jacked it in like that. And I moved over to Sheffield to do an unpaid internship, got myself a five grand, five grand's worth of debt, started living in a hovel um, working every hour that was available. Um, when I say working, like I wasn't working at all. I had like no income. Well, that's a lie. Actually. I, I was earning 35 pounds a week, but I had to travel costing me 20 pounds to go and earn that 35. So it was uh, the things we do when we're interns, I guess. And yeah. So if we fast forward a little bit, I did eight months there at EIS in Sheffield. I, I managed to get a job with EIS in Manchester as a contractor um, from having applied for the women's water polo job. I didn't get that because I didn't have my UKSEA, but I did get asked to apply for the um, men's water polo job and no one else had been asked. So basically it was mine if I didn't cock it up. But the guy who was in charge of EIS at the time, like S&C-wise, he, he, he I don't know if he didn't want me, but basically kind of made my life pretty miserable. Um, and, you know, you got the carrot and the stick and he just beat me with a stick. Um, well, luckily at that time, stick I responded to. I mean, I was a, I'd been trying to play rugby and, and I was used to getting beaten around, um, putting my head into, you know, into problems. And and that continued, but I just changed from getting beaten up on a rugby pitch to getting beaten up professionally uh, and mentally rather than physically. So it, it didn't phase me or I didn't think it did, but over time it starts to grind you down and wear you down think on a few occasions he basically said uh, like, i don't know what you've been doing for the last eight nine months like you're you're worse than an, you're worse than an intern you're, you're pretty much nowhere and and i was 26 27 at the time and i said okay well guess i'm gonna have to show you show you that's not the case um so i was on that journey for with the is for a while i managed to convince him change his mind then he moved on so uh things started to change a little bit um I then got, it's been a bit up and down my career. Like you'll hear it from, from this tale, I suppose. I got asked to reapply for my own job um, from, from one of the sports and I didn't get it. I didn't get it um, because I thought I had a stinker at the interview, but it wasn't because of that at all. I, I, you know, I came to realize after it was because the, the performance director didn't like the way I was coaching the athletes and the relationship I had with the athletes. Now that relates to things like, um, I mean, my training group, I had about eight or nine guy, eight or nine athletes. And I think maybe 70, 75% of them had problems with behavior, ADHD, um, all sorts of different like home problems, different backgrounds. And they were just absolute wild. They were they were totally bonkers. They were doing backflips off the wall, parkour, you'd see him stood on the top of squat racks, all sorts of crazy shit. And he would come in and he would see this this stuff and think that there was just no control to a certain extent there was no control but when it was time to work they worked and, and i had a rapport and a relationship with them where i tried to manage risk as best i could i mean they weren't on the racks all the time i only apple once um but but essentially what i'm saying is that that he came in and saw a snapshot so that was my f- and, and he made some decisions probably then and there that this, pro- this guy probably isn't right for our program i don't want my program run like this so regardless of the physical improvements and what the athletes thought and the relationships I had with them, that, that was meaningless. And that was my first real taste of people's different agendas at different stages and levels throughout an organization. So understanding that in order for me to get on side with those athletes down at the bottom, I had to be a certain way. And I did have them on side. I was always fine with the athletes, but they don't matter because the guy at the top is the one who's paying the bills. So unless you get that guy on side, somehow then and help him to understand what it is you're doing and really truly understand what it is he wants, then you're going to be in a real, you're going to fall foul throughout your entire career. So that was my first taste of that. I was lucky then I I kind of fell into a job at at Rotherham Titans and had three and a half years there. Two were absolutely fantastic, but brutally hard work. Uh, The guys were absolute savages, The, the players, it was a proper like spit and sawdust, rocky environment. And, um, yeah, that's that was the, the culture that we created. It was it was gritty, it was the word they like to use is gritty, like Rotherham rather than were gritty. But um first two years we played this like jue joue, like run it from your own tri-line kind of rugby. It was absolutely amazing to to watch and, and everybody loved it. We were on sky sports more than more than half the premiership teams were because they knew that rather than played such a ma- like like wonderful rugby, the head coach then moved on to Wasps couple of new coaches came in. One was, um, yeah, and um, towards the back end, my, my life just turned to like a living hell, really. Um, I was done with, I probably learnt. I felt like I'd learned all I could from Rotherham within like the first two years. And then it just started to kind of go downhill and and I got into a real funk. Um, I lot, totally lost my mojo for, I guess, work and um, the, the industry. I kind of fell out of love with the industry and, and as a person a little bit and I, I had so many interviews and i just bombed bombed out all of them because of my mentality and the way i was projecting myself um and then we kind of jumped forward to to india really um how i kind of got there isn't isn't the most important thing really but what happened in india was i i, I absolutely got put myself back on the map or india put me back on the map india for those of you who've been or or know anything about it is the mo- one of the most like disgusting filthy like horrible stinking uh polluted crowded beautiful wonderful amazing kindest people you'll ever meet meet in your life magical happiest places you'll ever go in your entire life it's like a total contradiction and it's it's total oxymoron and it it just uh, i'm eternally grateful for what happened in india like that was the best decision i've ever made in my life to go there. Then. I I did a lot of, a lot of quite cool things there um, in terms of working with different types of athletes, wrestlers, a couple of, couple of very famous sisters called the Pogat sisters who ended up being the stars of a a film called Dangal, which was um, is currently the highest grossing film in Bollywood history. And I was coaching those coaching them for a period of time whilst they, whilst they were actually on the road to promote the film. So that was pretty wild having so many like hordes of people coming in, uh, like watching the sessions that we were doing and screaming and shouting. And we're talking like Messi and Ronaldo type famous in, in that circle, in that area. So that was pretty incredible. Did some work as the sport, the, the rehab guy uh, with the football team that the, the Bangalore football club. And then I was in charge of the boxing program for seven year, seven year olds up until four, uh, 24 and um, we moved over to an institute of sport and we brought people from all corners of India to this institute. Some of them had never seen running water. They, they'd never seen a toilet. So they would like, we had all these bizarre situations where they would use the shower head to fill the bucket of water, take the bucket of water onto the roof and then pour the buckets of water on themselves to shower and wash. Um, you know, they, they didn't know what a toilet was. So they'd be crapping in a bucket and throwing it over the hedge kind of thing. So, you know, these things were just kind of, Um, normal the cultural challenges and the differences were just absolutely amazing and and that kind of set me up really well for moving over to Romania with the the special forces so that was a job with Exos we were were contracted by a prime a tactical contract company who were the prime contractor they were employed by the US government and um, we went over to Romania to help kind of well, I guess the word is modernize their special forces and, and apply a human performance program. So whilst I was there, I had, I had kind of four bosses. So I had, um, uh, had the U S government had Exos, I had the tactical company that I was the, the was my parent company, if you like. And I had the remaining government. So I was kind of playing like 3d chess the, the whole time trying to appease everybody. And um, so that was, that was quite a, quite an interesting challenge. And yeah, again, like an absolutely bizarre journey, just weird and wonderful, just setting up a program from absolute scratch in, an, in, a, in a nation that wasn't hugely um, hugely forward thinking in terms of human performance and a little bit stuck in its ways in some regards as well. So that, that contract came to a close at the end of this January. It was just a natural conclusion. It got extended by six months. So we, we saw out that six months and then, and then that was it. And, and right now I've got two things on the go. so I'm, I'm doing some work with hintSA performance with uh, corporate work, some corporate clients, and also with a Formula 2 racing driver. And at the very beginning of that chapter, so not too much I can, uh, not too much detail I can go into there. And then the, the other side of things that I'm doing right now is I've just set up a company called the Career Blueprint, which is essentially helping, Anybody who is on their career pathway and journey to get a little bit more clarity and a little bit more direction with how they're going to achieve what they want, how to define what they want and and how to get there. So I won't go into too much more detail. I know that's a bit waffly, but um, I'm sure we'll dig into a bit of that as we go.
1: Uh, One thing I do want to dig into that we uh, discussed uh, off air briefly uh, is your take on the uh, Burn the Bridges uh, analogy that some people have so some people listening to this might think he had a 50,000 pound business and by all accounts sounded like you were doing pretty successful having yourself set up in Manchester to then jack that all in and do unpaid work at the English Institute of Sport in Sheffield so uh, for those who don't know the burn the bridges analogy do you want to elaborate on that further and secondly do you want to explain how you got yourself in the headspace to justify that to yourself and if you had a partner at the time, your partner.
0: Well, first things first, the partner went out the window with the she got burnt with the with the boats, shall we say? Um so yeah, I mean like the the way I interpret the burn the boats is um like I don't know too much about that that uh story to be honest with you. But the way I interpret it is you just like you go all in like you just throw all your chips down on one thing and that's it. You're doing it. And like, it's, it's make or bust. Simple as that. Uh, Single swim, you know, you choose whatever, like a a snippet you want to, for that. And when you look at something on face value, that's exactly what it will appear to be that this guy's burnt all the bridges. Oh no, we can't go back. Uh, What's he done? He's an absolute nutcase. Well, I'm pretty sure that he would have, ensured that he had set himself up for success that he will have the correct people with him he will have done the correct amount of uh, research or the the available research he will have chefs with him he'll have probably some sort of method or system of purifying water or figuring out whether he can purify water I don't know if they had that back then he will have some specialists on survival he will have some probably some boat builders so he could always rebuild some boats but, you know, these things don't get talked about. The, the, that's the background. That's the things that go on like, behind the lights. Everybody sees like, oh, my God, you're you're nuts. You've quit a 50, 50K job and you're going to do an unpaid internship. Yes, but I've been setting myself up for the last five or six years for this. And I have been building the skills required in order to be a success in this industry. It's not just... I've just thought, no, fuck it. I'm just going to go and do that. Now I fancy doing this. I'm going to quit everything. No, and I'd, I'd, I'd put all the, the big rocks in place prior to making that decision. Did I have, in terms of the the stakes, did I have uh, anything to fall back on? No, I did not. And but but what I did have, and then I burnt the bridges. Not I burnt the boats a number of times, but it's always been on my terms, and. I, I learned all of the lessons and put all the steps in place up to that one point. And then, you know, that self-belief that I had instilled was, was um, yeah, has allowed me to be a success, I suppose.
1: Yeah. And whilst I certainly wouldn't advocate this as financial advice, I've read from certain books that are saying stuff like, well, if you're going to go all in, you might as well go it all in, for example, run yourself broke and say your twenties, then do that when you're 60. Um, so it makes a lot of sense to, do that when you're younger and the opportunity cost is arguably obviously still high at that certain point in time. But comparatively speaking, doing that when you say 50, 60, 70 and pissing away your pension pot is a lot different.
0: Yeah, well, let's put it in perspective. I mean, like I, you could say I've burnt the boats like probably five, six, seven, eight times in my career. But every single time, like when I moved to India, like I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't have a bloody clue. I, and I purposely did next to no research so that it was a massive adventure. And I I also didn't have a bloody clue about Romania. I didn't know what was going to happen there. In fact, we only really had at that point three three months funding, so I didn't know what was going to happen after. And I've just moved to France. I don't know what's going to happen here. I don't even know if I'm going to get my residency. Don't tell the government that. And and you know all of these things. What was what was the worst that could happen to me if I had if it didn't work out in India? I'd move back to my parents. Yeah, that would suck, but. I'd move back. What would be the worst thing if it didn't work out in Romania? I would have moved in with, you know, my missus, or I would have gone back to the UK. You know, it it wasn't going to be the end of the world. You adapt and you move on. So, yeah.
1: I just listening to you say that reminds me of. uh, I'm pretty sure it's a TED Talk that I'd recommend people check out uh, by Tim Ferriss, where he talks about the importance of defining your fears rather than defining your goals. So, like you've just done there, it's like right if this exploration of whatever goal it is doesn't work out what actually will happen like yeah, it's like you said not ideal to move in with your parents but compared to i don't know other people's lives where it's like oh you could go homeless and then live on the street it's a darn sight better
0: yeah i mean without going too far off script like one of the biggest fears that everybody has is not having a job or an income well here's an idea build your own and you build your own and then you've always got that unless you choose to not tend to it. You don't become reliant on someone else employing you if you're building something for yourself. And that can then become your, your your job, your career, your pathway. So it doesn't always have to be, oh, Jesus, what's going to happen if I lose this job? Okay, I've lost this job. However, I've been building in the background. So I've been setting myself up for the future. So...
1: Yeah, no, I like that. I like that. And just to, we'll dive a little bit more into the career development stuff a little bit later in the podcast. But just to bring it uh, back to the tactical athlete, then um, you first got in touch with me, um, having seen a video that I'd posted after uh, watching ses Who dares wins, and my interpretation of how I might train a tactic athlete. Obviously, you've been there and done it. Uh, so, firstly. If you were to give the listeners, I suppose, a needs analysis of what a tactical athlete has to be physically prepared for, as someone with your experience, how would you go about breaking down what they do as a strength and conditioning coach and obviously someone who's been there and done it?
0: Yeah, so I guess the whole point of a needs analysis is to define what they need to be able to do, when they need to be able to do it, and to what level they need to be able to do that thing um and and how long i suppose now that is near enough undefinable for a tactical athlete so what you tend to do is just kind of plan and prepare for kind of worst case scenarios so what you can do is you can you can get together and i'm sure this uh, this has been done which is where a lot of the research has come from a lot of the uh, a lot of the early studies and the early research talks about the worst case scenario type um, planning and and training and uh, a guy called John Paul Nevin who would be a really good guest for you actually he spoke to me about um, how he's helped to redefine the way that the British military trains its athletes or its 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 um, soldiers when he went he went downrange and he he had he was sixty kilos he weighed sixty kilos he was having to carry seventy five kilos including weapon and and his burger and his pack. And they were having to do relatively long-range infills, and as part of their exfil, one of their one of the guys in their team got in in terrain that was, uh, you know, Afghanistan. So like it was up down, up down, up down, like proper mountain mountainous territory. And on their exfil, they they had they had a casualty, and they had to carry them out. And he said that it was it was the the most horrendous. Awful thing that's ever, that he's ever experienced, and and it could have been catastrophic for the whole team, and and it very nearly was. Um, and and he then you know made some real big pushes to change the way in which people are are training their their uh, soldiers in the UK. So he's been instrumental in that, and and essentially, it's very difficult to define what it is an operator needs to be able to do, but fundamentally they've got to be able to be functional when they get to where they're going so they have to be able to infill if they're going to infill and go and you know they're going to go and do whatever their mission set is then they've got to be able to get out and so they might be you know their pace plan their primary exit strategy is to be to be picked up by the chopper like on site uh on target but you know it's possible that that might change then their alternative is that they have to hump it you know, like five clicks to, to a secondary option, which again could be wiped out by whatever, whatever reason. So their contingency is that they then have to move this distance, but they can do so via vehicle. And then their emergency is they've got to hump it across a border. So they've got to go to the nearest border and and that's, and that's the type of thing that these guys are having to plan for and deal with. So in order to plan for and deal with that, you're establishing what it is they need to be able to do on, on each specific deployment. And, and what they tend to do is have a very, a very good base level, which is why the military is so strict. Well, they should be stricter in in lots of ways because there's a a fair bit of obesity creeping in now, but they, they, there's a fair amount of physical testing to ensure that that baseline stays at a good level. And then when they're when they're training up for a deployment, they're training up for that specific deployment. So a lot of them, if they, if they're doing what they call kind of like running and gunning, which would be going down, you know, streets and streets and streets, clearing houses, and, and they're going to be stationed in a city. Um, then they don't need to be super fit, but they need to be big. They need to be strong and they need to be able to do it over and over and over. Like had the resiliency to do it over and over. So there's a bit of a tendency towards like a little bit more lifting and and maybe a little bit more metabolic resistance type training, uh, CrossFit type stuff. But fundamentally, they need to be able to push, pull, drag, carry. And we're talking, you know, heavy loads, pushing and pulling and dragging and carrying um, as part of their jobs. Then they need to be able to move with load on their backs at a, a, a decent pace that's kind of. A very brisk walk, which would be uncomfortable for any of us really to hold on the street. They need to be able to do that with load and a weapon. Um, they, they also need to be able to, you know, run when they need to be, when they're required to with kit.
1: And so, go
0: on. No, no, no you go. You go.
1: I was just going to say, just uh, cycling back to what you said a, a couple of minutes ago, forgive my ignorance, but when you say uh, infill and exfil what do you mean by that?
0: So, in infill is when they get kind of dropped off, so the infiltration, and then their exfiltration. So when they get dropped off at their, their insertion point and then their pickup point, if you like.
1: Perfect. And uh, in terms of, you said that um, John Paul Nevin had been instrumental in revitalising how the British military train uh, their guys. So what are the, some of the key mistakes, either yourself or uh, John, would probably see with how military personnel are typically trained.
0: So that's something that that baffles me. I, I really truly don't understand it. Like we are putting so much time and attention into training elite athletes who essentially go and run around a track or chase a ball, or they go and throw a stick, like, or you know, whatever the sport is, you break it down and you know golf is hitting a is hitting a little ball with a with a metal stick and you've got tactical you've got soldiers who are going to fight for whatever country for you know national peace or world peace they're putting their lives at risk yet they're not trained anywhere near to the same degree and level that, uh, that an athlete is they're not given the same exposure they don't often have the same facilities and it and it absolutely drives me nuts i, I just don't understand it um, so so some of the biggest mistakes that we'll see is a, is an overemphasis on one physical quality. So typically they're either a lifter or a runner, or they're either endurance based or they're a lifter. That um, There's they, becoming a little bit of a better balance now, uh, but th- there's definitely like a predominance where you could almost get away with being just one and you could still pass your, your basic tests. So that becomes a little bit more challenging now. And you can see that they're changing the US guys. Are, uh, they always lead the way with all the physical, physical stuff. They lead the way and the the rest of the world's probably about 10 years behind them in terms of the, the adopting some, some uh, newer methods, should we say um, apart from maybe the Brits in, in terms of the elite side. Um, and yeah, I said, they, they, we, the, the biggest errors that we make are that we react to things and we react to cat, catastrophic events and it takes a catastrophic event for everybody to look in the mirror and say you know what we were not fit enough to do that because of that people died and that's to me that's such is that's terrible it's, it's shocking but you know this it's it seems to be often the way that things are done um Yeah, like I said, there's a predominance to to really focus only on one physical quality. There's a massive lack of attention paid to things like mobility and and general robustness in terms of movement quality. So you might get a guy that could deadlift like 250, 250 kilos, but, you know, you ask him to do uh, an overhead squat or you ask him to do a, a basic like hip opening exercise and he's like, you know, he's like the tin man, he can't do it. So you're thinking, how are you going to walk up a hill and drag a casualty with one arm with your body fully rotated? Like, How are you going to do that without breaking yourself or getting injured and becoming a liability for the rest of your team? So, yeah, massive, like, um, there's a real lack of that mobility. A lack of balance, I guess, is the, is the way to describe it. Lack of balance.
1: And it's a, just coming back to a couple of examples uh, you've said then, Obviously, as is the case with a lot of sports, there'll be a benefit that you can get from, say, improving your strength or improving your lifting up to a certain point. And then it's, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The Diminishing returns or a cost. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, So you can't afford to be, for example, you can't afford to exclusively pursue strength or exclusively pursue running. Um, Do you have... Any metrics or any standards in your experience where it's like, right, minimum baseline, we need to be operating here. And once we get past this, we now need to explore improvements in other areas?
0: I think it depends on what the group are required to do. So you will have set groups that are... you, You don't have to have... A totally balanced spider chart you can have you you know you you're you're a lifter you can have that but you have to have a minimum threshold and normally their baseline standards for i don't know what would it be like they're changing they change all the time but they're talking about you know a 12 minute uh 12 12 12 and a half minute 3k or two mile you're you're talking about you know minimum of sort of 10 pull-ups around that 10 mark sometimes it's less but ideally your, your operators really should be busting out close to 20 in my opinion um but it's not um it's not always that easy to define like if you really really suck at rucking like there were the the, the marches with the, the loaded march then you're never going to make it if you really suck at running, you're never going to make it. You can get strong, but it's damn slightly harder to, to get fit in this, in this world than it is to, to get strong. So they'll often get spat out the back because they don't have the capacity to be able to do it day in, day out, day in, day out. And they get worn down and beaten down by the, the, the general training that takes place uh, as opposed to the actual, you know, the, the day-to-day of the job is wearing them down because it's accumulated load which they can't tolerate because there's that lack of capacity
1: and we'll dive into the uh, accumulated load and the rucking in a second Um, but just to explore something you mentioned earlier about robustness now obviously conceptually i can get my head around for example not breaking when you're doing these rucks or carrying the bergen for days on end but how would you go about assessing or developing robustness for military personnel? Is there a specific testing battery or is it just a simple case of, look, can you do this? Yes or no?
0: Yeah, I think that this question of testing has been flogged to death by, by so many different people. It's, it's, if the shoe fits, so whatever you feel you need to do, you can do it as long as it gives you a metric to be able to provide some sort of improvement. And Do you always have to have a metric to to know that you're doing good work no but sometimes we have to justify our jobs and that was why we did it and we did a mod an fms full fms and then we did a modified fms was it the 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 best strategy no was it the one of the only one only ones that we felt was it valuable to us yes did it did it help us inform our programming yes did we see improvements in our movement quality from our operators and our recruits based on a test retest and an intervention strategy yes so from from that perspective did, did were we able to provide people with uh, intervention plans that were specific to where they scored really poorly yes but it wasn't just oh you've got poor shoulder range so we're going to give you shoulder exercises those exercises are thoracic mobility, the shoulder mobility. They there's elements of synchronization with hip opening. There's 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 is everything. So it's never just you know you're going to do one one type of movement with regards to robustness. So yeah, I think um, I think the the robustness side of things is 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 really important. But there's a there's a line between. Uh, the tissue tolerance is is kind of bundled into that as well and what what tissues are going to come under under real stress and where that's going to put it where that's going to create issues for the joint so for example if your calves aren't doing what they need to be able to do then you know if you're not used to walking uphill in boots then because you haven't conditioned your calves properly then your ankle is going to become vulnerable and susceptible to sprains and strains. Um, and we see it time and time again. So we would implement quite, quite intense um, uh, protocols for these types of things to, to ensure that the areas that were most at risk were, were getting the treatment or the, the time and attention they needed. And they're most at risk because they're the areas that typically people will not train for. So you, you ask somebody to, get prepared for a selection event or for a a prep course, which was in, in our case. And more often than not, most guys aren't putting a bag on their back and going for a ruck. They're not doing it because it's easier and it's nicer and it's more comfortable to go in the gym. They ain't putting the bag on their back and going off into the hills. So needless to say, which activity do they suck at the most? Rucking. Which is the most injurious activity? Rucking. Which activity do the most people break during? Rocking. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's not rocket science.
1: <laughs> so when you said, for example, if you're able to um, elaborate on, when you say stuff like intense uh, protocols and, I suppose, bulletproofing those sites most at risk, could you give the listeners, for example an example of the session and the sets reps maybe the exercise selection that you might be doing um, for these areas
0: yeah so so in in my scenario i had like i'll use the first year as an example so we had 189 guys walk through the door so we're breaking that down into field teams of about 66 around 60 something like that and um so everything is defined by the logistics so what we would do is we would spend some time at the beginning working on some movement quality and some movement competency with the basic movements of um you know squatting lunging hinging that side of things and then we would move into some sort of strength work or oh, we would do mobility work which would be general in terms of hip work um, thoracic shoulder it would all be quite general but you know you know that's what they needed at that point and then we would do our, our strength work. We would do some sort of ESD. They, they all had big issues with their trunk. So we would always bundle in some, the two biggest issues we had really were, were their mobility and their capacity. So we took some of the focus away from the resistance side of things by chucking in by supersetting everything. So there was a, a larger metabolic component to it. And we, Then also uh, that that reduced the loads that they were able to lift because strength was not our priority. They all scored reasonably well on their their kind of muscular endurance strength related tests. And we would bundle in a, so we might do a, let's say uh, a reverse lunge, uh, a front loaded reverse lunge kettlebell. um, And we might pair that with uh, some ISO pull-ups in three different positions then we would do something like a world's greatest stretch or a pigeon stretch. Um, then they would just, their pigeon stretch, they'd do 20, 30, 20 seconds each side, then they'd start the set again. So do set number two, set number three, set number four. Very limited rest. Um, and as their quality, if their quality started to reduce, we would reduce the amount of reps that they were doing. And we would increase the amount of mobility work that they were doing per set then once we've done kind of two batches, two supersets of, of some sort of strength work, we would move into what I like to call like a conditioning based circuit. So we would pair together something like a loaded carry with some sort of calf work, which would be like normally tiptoe walks, which I liked. Um, so in a, in a square, so you're hitting the different angles. Then we would do some sort of trunk work, like a bear crawl forward and back. Then there would probably be some sort of um, some sort of retraction based work in there. And putting that together as a circuit spreading them out a little bit as well so they had a little bit of a movement in between each each one was was a really good way to firstly keep the flow going and secondly um uh shoehorn in some t- tissue tolerance or um postural conditioning if you like
1: yeah that's great it's funny because it reminds me of a conversation i was having with a friend of mine uh, yesterday and he basically said oh for longevity purposes if you had to pick between strength and endurance training which one would you pick and I said well firstly obviously it's a binary question but I was like that's assuming that your strength work can't enhance your endurance which it absolutely can if you design it in or you constrain it in the ways that you've just described
0: yeah the, the constraints of the environment that I've been working in have been it begins with variables and what variables there are the more variables there are in my opinion the easier it is to plan a session so i like to say that i'm only actually good at two things in strength and conditioning number one is logistics like you know i I can put a session together in limited space with obscene numbers and and still produce a performance-based outcome because I'm aware of the logistics and limiting factors around um, lots of different things. And that probably stems from my my work at Rotherham where I'm the only guy managing 40 dudes who are all out for blood every single day, waiting for me to make a mistake. And <clears throat> the second thing is developing other coaches and developing other people. So those those are my two kind of um. USPs or specialities, if you like. I'm not saying I'm trash at everything else, but you know, I'd say I was good at those two things. So, understanding variables and the impact they can have on performance is is um, yeah something I'm really really interested in. I I find it fascinating.
1: And just uh, staying on the um, special forces topic before we dive into the um, career development stuff, in terms of uh, accumulated load. So, for example when people train up for selection, if anyone's ever seen SAS, who dares wins on the TV, they're clearly subjected to conditions, which if we're talking about elite athletes, wouldn't be considered optimal. So malnourished, potentially dehydrated, uh, potentially lack of sleep. Uh, One question I've got is if you were training somebody, so before their, I don't know, eight to 12 week camp with yourself, before they transition into that, how would you mitigate or prepare them for training in these less than optimal conditions? So for example, would it be the case of saying, look, your body is going to get absolutely battered in the next eight weeks from a recovery perspective. So all the training you do before this, you should be well slept, you should be hydrated, you should be eating properly or from a psychological perspective, would you say, look, you're going to need to make sure that when you get into this eight week camp, that this is not the first time you experience those sort of hardships, if that question makes sense.
0: Yeah, uh, it's it's a good question. Um, I, I've never known anybody to train somebody to get their ass kicked um, in terms of the SF world. So I've never known anybody to, you know, stay up all night or do a training session at you know like four in the morning or three in the morning. Um, having had two hours sleep just to, you know, prepare for something that may or may not happen because it changes the the process changes and it does that you know the principles remain the same but they change the process in order to keep people guessing but ensuring they, they that they get the outcomes that they want. So so I wouldn't advocate you know staying up late and, and malnourishment anything like that because essentially you're just increasing your vulnerability and you're increasing your chances of actually getting injured when you get there. So what a lot of the guys do in the U S at ranger school is they tell them and they prepare them not to peak for the mid for day one, they arrange for their peak to come at like midway through, like at the end of that first week. I don't, I can't remember how long ranger school is, but, um, they're looking for them to actually be peaking like somewhere in the middle when it starts to get really dirty, you know, when they're getting into the horrendous side of things. Um, I've also heard that some of the guys like on those longer courses, like eight, 12 weeks, uh, are turning up chubby. So they're turning up like not fat, but overweight so that they can chew into those, those stores and resources. And they're actually losing weight as they go. So everything's appearing to become easier. So if you turn up lean and mean, then there's only one way for you to go, isn't there? It's going to be start eating into your, eating into your muscle mass. Um, Interestingly, most of the people that that we ever saw who turned up looking like freaks, like lean, mean, geez, he's trained for this. They don't make it. They don't make it. And equally, the ones who are, you know, just clearly like fat and out of shape, they obviously don't make it either. So it's it's that middle ground, you know, that kind of not quite a dad bod, but like, you know, someone who clearly trains, who's in in shape. But you could be in better shape than you are. And you see them at the end, you're like, ah, okay you, you, you planned for this, you were smart. So, you know, just, I think probably it would be go through a, a rigorous training program. So you're used to carrying whatever like personal weight you have. And, you know, but if you're overweight, you're overweight, because as soon as you get there, they're going to dictate your nutrition and you're going to drop pretty much instantaneously and everything's going to seem a bit easier. Um, it would obviously be some sort of taper, but taper so that you, you, not, not for day one, because it's never that savage, like straight away. And you would, um, yeah, you'd, you'd ensure that you have a really solid base, but ultimately that, that your capacity to tolerate work day in, day out is, is up there. And you also, you have to know that you can go to a horrible place. You have to know that you can do horrible like training and, and, and survive it. You know, that you're mentally tough enough there's a there's a really good book called Building the Elite, and they they post on Instagram pretty. Much, they they post one once a day, and, and it's they're fantastic posts. What people aren't doing in in their preparation for special forces is they're not preparing their minds as well as their bodies. So the amount of times that I have done it, you've probably done it, we've all done it. it it's our mind is telling us that we can't do something, and our bodies say, yeah, you're right. Actually, I can't, but. Really, it's understanding the mind and what the mind is trying to do, and then appeasing the mind, resetting, refocusing, and um, and reinitiating the the correct process. It's a three R's principle that the SF guys use. So recognizing that there's something going on, um, refocusing, and then reengaging with the task. So you know you can apply that to any sort of um, any sort of scenario or situation, but really trying to understand. And it's almost like a an internal conversation. We've all had it. Oh, you, you need to stop. This is too hard. And then you know, it's like the angel and the devil. Is it? Yeah, it is too hard. You really need to stop. You can't do this. Well, I think I can actually. And and which one wins is if you think you can or you think you can't, you're probably right. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't have to be a discussion with like the angel and the devil as to as to who wins, but what what this book is talking about is ensuring that you have the mental processes in place and that you've understood what those processes are in order to deal with the the devil if you like
1: just i know this will probably differ on the basis of what the mission aim is so it might be a bit hard to nail it down but just in listening to you talk about the physique of successful or the um, demographic of successful people who pass selection Uh, if you had to state specific anthropometrics or stuff like that whether it's height weight um, what kind of athlete would from another sport might you compare them to or if you had to build the ideal um, person for selection from a physical standpoint what would that look like
0: So I I can tell you from, I can tell you very, very specifically from about 10 or 15 years ago, because that's the guys that I was working with. So whilst I was in in Romania, I was living and working with retired US special forces guys. Some of these dudes had like 27 years worth of experience. They were like proper fucking Jason Bourne motherfuckers, these guys. And every single one of the contractors, there was a whole group of contractors. Every time they came in, they all looked like identical like they were the same height they were they were the same weight and you can just picture them in their prime 80 to 85 kilos plus or minus, uh, one or two kilos um and i think it was five foot eight plus or minus to two, um two inches um very rarely very rarely over six foot and they were just lean mean they just went and went and went and went and went, and they were just straight up savages. And nowadays, we had in our first year, we had somebody who was, I think, six foot six graduate, wow. and somebody who was five foot uh, five or five foot six. But the norm, I would say, is probably exactly in line with what I've just described. You could probably, you could probably take. A pool of people, I, I, I've got the statistics somewhere, but I think it would be around 185, 186 centimeters, uh, maybe 100, and, yeah, around 100. And so what's that in feet? That's like 510, five, probably about 510 was the average now. Then the average weight probably would have been about, yeah, 80, 88, 89, probably similar. They would probably be, The Romanian guys, they more than likely, most of them would have had uh, too much body fat. So they typically would have probably been sitting closer to um, 18%, I suppose, body fat, whereas really you'd want them closer to that, probably around 16, 15, 16, I guess. Um, And yeah, I mean, most, I, I suppose our averages when they left were our best runtime was like 10 for 3K, was like 10 50, something like that. So he was flying, and the worst was probably um, like 13 10. And our average was around 12 20, something like that. Uh, Pull ups wise, the average was around seven. Bearing in mind, we had guys who were, were injured and still doing the tests, so they were scoring like zero. And then we had guys who were doing like 23, 24, strict, just for fun. Um, and then the average pull-ups was around, uh, so push-ups was around, uh, 70 in it, 70 or 80 in two minutes. And yeah, so that's the kind of standard, but it's changing. It's very much changing depending on the mission set. So, um, they don't tend to do the averages like this anymore because it's not, not as relevant really.
1: Yeah. No, I was just curious because, um, anyone who's been, follow my instagram of label have seen me walking up there's like a field near my house which there's a hill and whatnot and i finally built up to 30 kilos and i'm thinking this is killing me and this is in an evenly spaced barbell like how you deal with that mass as an awkward load strapped to your back going for miles and miles and miles at end is beyond me
0: it's easier it's easier because the weight is evenly spread and the weight is centered on your hips so you change your technique as you walk so you can walk kind of like that Mm -hmm. and if you can that that keeps the center that keeps the load almost like straight down through the legs so the hips are basically taking a lot of that um and then when you're going downhill you're pushing your knees forward and sitting your ass back to try and push that center of mass change that center of mass um but yeah i mean it's the first time you do it you put 30 kilos on your back it feels like a, a a A house but you you don't start at 30 you start at 10 and then you build and build and build the same way as you would someone just coming back into the gym so
1: and if you so if you're programming rucking um for your guys when we talk about the variables do you start by increasing the load and getting to a set distance do you start by hitting a set distance and then increasing the load how do you do that
0: yeah, so, so with rucking, you've got a whole bunch of variables to, to play with. You've got speed, you've got terrain, you've got uh, distance, you've got load, you've got, uh, what else is there? Speed, load, distance, terrain. Yeah, I mean, those are the main ones. And what we try to do is create some consistency so that, some of them don't change. If all of them change, you don't really know how somebody's progressing. You don't really know the, the impact and the effect of it. So at some point you have to take a risk and, and you have to draw a line in the a sand, in the sand like a beginning line. So, so what we did is we said, right, you're gonna do, what they needed to do was a minimum of 20 kilos in the testing events and we drew a line in the sand and we said right so we're going to begin with 20 kilos but what and and we're going to keep our pace the same and the thing that's going to change is our distance and whatever time it takes for them to complete that is okay we were all right with that and eventually we were gonna we were gonna we were gonna get it into the correct zone um and how we got to this was increase their exposure to rucking so we did very limited amount of running we never ran for more than like a kilometer uh, during our our first year training program and we did like 1k intervals and maximum would be like four of those and that was the longest run they ever did and and they then went into the selection event and were doing five i don't know what it was in year one maybe like five and eight mile runs or something and they were they were crushing them um because the accumulated load of the training week of everything that they were doing of the type of training that we were doing of the high intensity kind of resistance-based training of the circuits of the tactical work that they were doing day in day out was, was building the base for them. So if we jump back to rucking, we would say we would do a tempo ruck early in the week. So we would do like that was to help people get the hang of the pace. So that would be like with the 20 kilos, they would have done their run. So they would have gone and done some interval based running. And then we'd come back to the gym, we'd put the boots on and then we'd go for a, go for a walk, basically 20 to 30 minutes, maximum amount of time. And we would aim to shift, to move at the the pace that we were going to move at. They would always carry their weapons and they would have 20 kilos on their back. And and we would do our best to keep everybody together. If people are dropping out in 20, 30 minutes, their chances of making it through the whole, whole thing are just next to none. So I would allow a bit of a slinky there, but, you know, ideally, there should be no slinky. It's not how things are done, really. But from, from a training perspective, where, where I was, that was a good opportunity for everybody to see who was, who was where and, you know, for them to really realize, geez, that's the pack. I'm this far behind. I need to up my game or I need to, I need to bugger off. Um, and then at the back end of the week, which is normally a Friday, we would um, we'd do our longer range movements. So we began our eight week process at around six and a half clicks and then we finished at 18. So in eight weeks, we got them from six and a half up to 18 with a a real undulating uh, program that was under uh, absolutely undulating terrain, whatever the conditions were. Sometimes it was snowing, sometimes it was terrible rain, sometimes it was warm. Um, But yeah, ultimately um, they, they got got the work done. Uh, Not always in the times that we wanted, but we were generally okay with that. The, the, the people who were going to pass normally achieved it. We, we had, um, in the second year, we had a group join us three weeks in, and they were kind of a civilian group that had just come straight in off the street, and they were studs. They, they, honestly, they are absolute freaks. And it got to the first ruck, the first ruck march, and they were nowhere. They just got absolutely blown apart by these, by these guys who had been who were, no, who were worse physically, but they'd done three weeks' worth of build-up event, and we thought maybe these civilians are good to go, so we put them in at a slightly lower distance, but we were going we to stop them a couple of clicks before the other guys, and they, they were nowhere. They were honestly so far behind. It was unbelievable. They just, couldn't, they just couldn't walk with load on their back, so we had to hugely change their program and expose them to that in order to you know, get them to a point where they were going to be able to do what we needed them to do.
1: And so yeah. i was just gonna say how much of that would you say is physical versus mental i only ask because uh since well last three four weeks part of my training that i've been doing myself is walk the barbell up to the hill do a few complexes come back down and in week one i was like oh this is 20 kilos i'm i'm gonna have to stop whereas now because i know i've done it i'm like well you've done it before without stopping so now you don't need to and i don't really know how much physical adaptation would have taken place in that versus you've done it now as you said for three weeks
0: yeah um rocking is is a bit of a skill so firstly you get used to it and secondly those three weeks those other guys had the accumulation of all the rest of the volume as well so they are starting to get the adaptations kicking in they've probably lost a fair amount of weight and um, like like body mass has started to reduce. So the dead weight, the body fat normally would would be trimming down by this point. And um they there is the physical and mental side of it. Mentally it is tough because it's plod, 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 like like non Um so as, this is why is such a good event to judge where people are, but but physically, yeah, it's, it's, it's massively. Physical as well. It's hugely physical. It's uh, it's probably the most taxing event that they, that they do on a on a weekly basis. So it's um, there's a huge amount of of both in there really. But um, I, I wouldn't want to hang my hat on it being more one than the other. But the impact of not having three weeks worth of prior events, uh, three rucks plus two tempo rucks, so five rucks in total or six rucks in total. The, the impact of not having had the bag on the back for six for six sessions was, was huge.
1: And finally, just on the subject of uh, rucking, what kind of athletes or people do you think would benefit most from rucking outside of the tactical populations?
0: I think that anybody could. I would probably want to avoid it with people who are predominantly desk-bound. Um, because of the areas that it puts strain typically if you're a little bit weaker um or there's areas that that change your posture so it's going to shift where the strain is placed but yeah i mean i think it's a great way to add some intensity to in a non-aggressive way to to a walk so walking is is relatively kind of tax-free if you like it's fairly low calorie but you know, it gets the heart rate going, but yeah, chuck it, chuck it in. I definitely, um, I definitely add it in to, to, to a lot of people's programs from an athlete's perspective. I don't necessarily think it has got a place. Um, maybe as a bit of variation in, in the off season, but I probably wouldn't chuck it in with an athlete. Um, you did ask a question earlier as to what sort of athlete would, would, would make a good operator. Um, and the, the answer would be an MMA fighter, uh, probably wouldn't want to go with the heavyweights, or so you know those around the kind of uh, 90 kilos a maximum. Uh, a boxer, they tend to be badasses. Anyone who's in some sort of combat-based sport, anyone uh, who's who's done any sort of wrestling, they tend to just crush it. Someone cut, turns up and they got cauliflower ears, then you're pretty much like, yeah, you're going to make it, mate. Don't worry about it, because <laughs> um, you know that they just take a beating because they've they've had a, they've had a beating. Uh, for, uh, I'd also say um, rugby players but specifically maybe like a a lithe back row forward probably around that 95 kilo, 90 kilo mark or a uh, a centre probably would be like a gritty centre around the same sort of weight would, would normally do pretty well.
1: And uh, just in wrapping up then, if... You could have one key message for the listeners of this podcast, whether they're athletes, coaches, or just people with an interest in s a s Who dares wins. What would that key take-home message be?
0: Well, who dares wins. Don't believe everything you see on TV. But the the, the message probably would be that um, one of the one of the biggest assets that you can have in your locker is is patience to to be able to and and adaptability so being able to adapt to a range of situations and and being patient enough to stick with a a program an individual a a line of communication it can be really valuable in terms of you know really building your rapport so for me that there's an age that everybody knows that you've got to be known liked and trusted and it can be very, it can be quite long-winded, especially in the special forces world, to get those three. But once you do get those three, they'll run through walls for you. Um, but if you stop at one of them, then you know that's the level that your relationship is at, and that's what they're going to give you back in return in terms of effort. So the, the the rapport and the relationships you have with your individuals is is um, very much dictated by you as a coach and and how you can. Understand, adapt, and manage the environment that you're that you're working in. So, I think that'll probably be the biggest
1: takeaways. And in terms of a uh, recommended resource, I mean, we spoke off air, and you said you're actually trying not to overconsume in terms of uh, the books that you're reading. Um, but if you did have a recommended resource, again, book, podcast, app, whatever, what would you um, recommend to the listeners?
0: I think that I would probably go with two. Um, I've actually got one of them here. I should probably start working for this company. Um, just give us one sec. I can show you it. The first one is to help you create a little bit of self-awareness, and this is called a mind journal. Um, so that's probably the wrong way around on the camera, isn't it? No, but, no, no, that's spot on. Yeah. So this is called the mind journal and uh, it's a very good journal for helping you to understand a little bit about yourself and and, uh, it's specifically for men, this one, but I'm sure there's female versions out there and it will help. It is, it has been helping me to solidify my path, my journey, my, my, some, some bits from a personal perspective, as well as a professional. And I, I think that's a fantastic resource. And the second one that I probably would go for would be something that's all encompassing, something that's going to hit multiple areas, but really kind of speaks the truth in terms of um, what it is actually like and, and to get into the industry. And that would be probably strength coach network.
1: Awesome. I'll put both of those uh, in the show notes and uh, penultimate question. If you could spend time observing one coach or person with their athletes or tactical personnel or whatever um, who would you choose to observe and why? Um,
0: I've been really lucky in that I've seen a lot of good coaches interacting and coaching with with operators. It's a very difficult crowd to get in front of. Um, and you, you can't just kind of walk in, they're very untrusting and, and, and all that side of things for a good reason. Um, I, I would probably say, actually, I'd really like to observe for an extended period of time, like, watch a, like a day's worth of training of a ton of different athletes, probably Kier and Flat, And that's because I don't believe that, I haven't seen any of the coaching that he's done but I've heard great stories from athletes I've worked with after he's worked with them. And in addition to that, I don't believe that their kind of social media persona is in line with the way in which he would actually coach or maybe it is, but in a different way. So I'd be really interested to see that. And I think I'd have a lot to learn. Um, So, yeah, I think that'd be, that'd be a really interesting day, half a day to to unpack and unpick some of what he does and why.
1: Perfect. And we're going to talk about uh, your current ventures with uh, the Coaches Journal in almost the second half or a separate podcast that will follow after this one. Um, but if people want to reach out to you and they've got any questions, uh, how can they find you?
0: Yes, yeah, so you can get me on Instagram at Career Blueprint. So that that's my main account. That's my business account. And I'll be shifting everything over. I'm also using JF underscore Performance. Where you know I'm trying to make that a little bit more, um, a little bit more fun, a little bit more personal. But I'm bit by bit shifting things over to the professional side. On Twitter, I believe it's at Coach Blueprint One. Couldn't find Career Blueprint as the name; someone had already got it, so I had to go with that. And then, if you wanted to contact me via email, it's uh, contact at your career blueprint. Uh, sorry, contact at yourcareer-blueprint.com.
1: Awesome. I'll put those in the show notes. Uh, Thank you very much for your time today, Josh. No problem. Great to chat. Thank you for listening to episode 49 of the Platform to Perform podcast with myself as always, Todd Davidson, and today's guest, Josh Fletcher. If you've enjoyed the podcast, it'd be great if you could leave us a review via your preferred podcast platform and share this with a coach or athlete that you believe would benefit from listening. If you're in a position to support the podcast and you want to go one better than that, then head over to www.patreon.com forward slash Todd Davidson P2P Coaching. In exchange for signing up and supporting the podcast, you'll receive exclusive access to my educational strength and conditioning content, which includes all of my programs released exclusively via this platform. Thank you very much for tuning in and I'll catch you again in the next episode.